Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-host. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Okay, here we are in Tyler, Texas, our fourth year doing the Tyler Conference. Um, when we did it the first time, I definitely didn't think we'd be doing it a fourth time, but I'm thrilled to be here. It's one of those amazing doors that opens and you walk through, and now here I am with uh, Aaron Zimmerman What's sitting up? in for R.J. Heyman, who is, I guess, back in Houston. Or rehab? Where, where or rehab, he? yeah, so that's a good question, good uh, clarification. For bail or something. And sitting in for the Reverend Condon, we have the talented, the lovely, the impending published spiritual memoirist, Charlotte Getz. Hey. Glad you're here, Charlotte. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Charlotte, where are you coming from? I uh, am coming from Long Beach, California, by way of Birmingham, Alabama. By way of a, a lot of other places. By way of... That. <laughs> guys, thanks for... Joining me. Yeah, glad to be here. I expect this will be a whole lot better than with those other You jokers. used more adjectives for Charlotte than for me. I'm just I mean, I'm counting. Obviously. <laughs> well, folks that don't know, Aaron is the president of the Mockingbird Board, as we call it, the Mockingbird. Yes. And so... Drunk with power. Drunk with power. I mean, this, he could just put the kibosh on this whole thing. Yeah. If it goes poorly, so no pressure. Yeah, just keep going. You're doing fine so far. Okay. <laughs> Praise God. Well, a bunch of different things to talk about. We do have an audience uh, in front of us. We're not broadcasting live, but we're recording live, and then we will have, I guess people always record live. They're not dead. Yes. Um, But then if you hear background noise, it's uh, people coming in as we get ready to start this fourth uh, conference. This week, the big news, and it's almost fortuitous that we're in Texas. Mm. Because when Charlotte and I were driving here from the Dallas airport, we came across an enormous billboard that simply said, he is home. Mm. Yeah. And they weren't talking about Matt McGill. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't talking about, uh, you know, who, they were talking about uh, Billy Graham, of course. Mm. This is that week uh, where Billy has uh, died, He's 99 years old. And I think it's worth mentioning. I mean, the, the interwebs went uh, a flutter with think pieces, mainly tributes. I think I read a few not-so-nice things. Of course, in our day and age, uh, anything that you've said in the past uh, can and will be held against you. Mm. So, um, But there's also thoughtful weighing in. I read that Christianity Today had originally prepared a memorial issue for him back in 2002. Mm. And it has has tributes to him from um, uh, Richard John Newhouse and uh, John Stott. Both yeah. of whom died mm. since right. then. Mm. So that will be interesting to read. But um, Billy Graham, what, any contact you guys have had, what does that mean to you? We're, I know we're slightly of a generation, I think I can speak for both of you, that's a little bit post-Billy yeah. mm-hmm. Graham. Yeah. yeah. Well, I grew up in, uh, for part of my growing up time, I was just talking to Charlotte, part of that was in California, where she lives now, but we moved a lot. Uh, legal issues. Uh, but... <laughs> Part of my growing up was in North Carolina, and of course that was the home of the Graham family. And so, you know, I knew somebody that went to prom with his grandson, 
curfew was 10 mm -hmm. p.m. Uh, but he's somebody that I've watched from afar and uh, admired from afar. But I was sort of um, not that surprised by his death. He had been in declining health for a long time and had known that one of these days that was uh, coming. And if there was anybody whom I was, I mean, it's not my place to judge, but I wasn't really worried about you know, where he's going. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I didn't, ex at first I didn't feel that much grief. And then I watched a montage of um, footage from over the course of his career. Somebody had put together some kind of highlight mm -hmm. reel for Billy Graham. And uh, what struck me is how much he changed uh, in his ministry. He went from this really um, aggressive, uh, in-your-face kind of preacher early on. Uh, in this sort of very sharp cut suit, uh, almost felt like he was yelling at you, just kind of had that very impassioned, zealous vibe about him. Mm -hmm. uh, but then as he aged, he just sort of got softer and softer. Mm. Uh, and there was something really beautiful about that. And also someone that, he did something that you don't see a lot of people do, which is to admit mistakes. Mm -hmm. He admitted that he got a little too close to Nixon. Mm -hmm. He had been um, kind of a vocal defender of him. And then when the tapes came out, he said, well, you know, I guess I was wrong. And after that, he said, I'm not going to get mixed up in partisan politics mm. ever again. Um, he was a man that, that admitted when he made mistakes. You know, he was a little bit slow in the civil rights movement. Um, but he came around and famously, there's a story of him. There was a, some sort of rope dividing black from white at one of his crusades. And he personally went down and, you know, removed mm. the rope. Mm. So um, to see him, and I just, I started weeping in my kitchen, just sort of mm. seeing a man in ministry who, who was not perfect, but uh, admitted his mistakes and just beautifully softened with time and just was so focused on, I mean, haters are going to hate, but really, it, as far as I could tell, it, towards most of his ministry, he really just wanted people to know Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, went back on Mock Mockingbird to published, I guess a few years ago, these interviews with Woody Allen and him. Oh, yeah. And I was like... Not sure where this is going. It, I was dying. I thought it was like some of the coolest 10 minutes of video footage I've ever seen because Woody Allen is like not giving him like any rope, kind of picking on him, um, you know, immediately like, you know, we are coming from totally different places. Like, I don't believe most of what you believe. You probably don't believe most of what I believe. And Billy Graham just like is able to laugh at himself and like still seems to me to just like totally... Um, illustrate the gospel in the face of like this really humorous and also, but also pointed, you know, he, he's the one that's out of place in that moment, um, but handled it so well and just made me, you know, my parent, again, like, like we said, like the Billy Graham, I don't have a lot of peers who like had major conversions from Billy Graham, but you know, our parents do. And, you know, my mom says she used to watch, when my dad was out of town, like the reruns of his gatherings. I don't know, they used to play him on a local TV station. And that it was just, I mean, he was just pouring out the gospel. And mm. I don't know, it's pretty amazing. You know, well, something that's always struck me as I've watched footage of Billy Graham as a speaker at the Crusades is on some level, he's not that amazing. Yeah. He doesn't just kill like some sort of incredible comedian and just have like, the crowd yeah, like not super in the, you know, charismatic. he's not super yeah. charismatic he's not the most gifted rhetoric rhetorician uh you know 
if you watch speeches by Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, he's this amazingly mm. powerful, tear-jerking preacher. And Billy Graham is not that. Mm -hmm. He's just sort of straightforward. This is the message. He's so clear. Um, but there's no, he, he's all stake and no sizzle. Mm -hmm. Now, right. the Gaither band, that's another matter. But, <laughs> but Billy Graham himself, um, he was just, it's, I mean, it's, you watch him and you're, you're waiting for some fireworks and it's just kind of boring mm -hmm. yeah. on some level. But there is a, there is a deeper persuasion. There's a deep, maybe a deeper charisma or something. Mm -hmm. But he just is so clear. So that thing that the, that the uh, website just posted that kind of revisiting that Tommy James thing about sweet cherry wine. And, and uh, what he said is, he, so he's, he's high, he's recording, mm -hmm. and he just hears Billy Graham at Shea Stadium just presenting the gospel in a way that was so clear and so mm -hmm. simple and he'd never heard it before. So he gets down and puts his hand on the TV and comes to Jesus right there. And so one, that's one of the things that, whatever you think about this man, what he was not selling was himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it does seem that there was some, uh, you know, am I allowed to use a religious word, an anointed quality about just yeah. the fact that here's somebody with, uh, as far as, I mean, yes, he was tall and good looking, more hmm. in his earlier career. and Apparently uh, he looked like my grandfather. I feel like I need to say that for the your public. Your grandfather looked like him. Or not, well, I don't know. However wow. you want to say it. <laughs> but yeah, it, but yeah, it was just, he just had this message and it was simple and it was, it was almost in a sense defying the, the, the kind of charismatic televangelist preacher movement. Yeah. Trying to go even simpler. Uh, mm. And yet it still worked. And, I know that, and that thousand people came. That Tommy James story is my all-time favorite story. Yeah. And that's when, when he ended up. He wrote that song, "Sweet Cherry Wine," about the blood of Jesus. It's about the blood of Jesus. That's and in incredible. fact, Tommy James like remained a Christian. Yeah. It, it took, yeah. Yeah. yeah, even though he was, you know, I don't know where he was in his headspace at that time. And then what kind of seemed to convert the rest of the band too over time. <laughs> I mean, I know this is why everyone should go out and listen to Monet Monet and Crimson <laughs> and Clover, and I think we're alone now. I still love those. And songs. know that those are actually worship songs. Is that a good Lenten discipline? It's a Lenten discipline for our listeners, at least. <laughs> um, but his, it's, it is true that his fingerprints are everywhere. The youth ministry that I used to work for was actually founded, and I met my wife through this organization, was actually founded by a bunch of sort of society ladies out in Long Island, in Oyster Bay. Mm who everyone put st stuck up their nose about Billy Graham, and then one of them decided to go into town and hear him. Just, it's As just, a lark? It's just like that episode of The Crown that was yeah. on recently yeah. right. we wrote about a Mockingbird, as, sort of as a lark. And like 10 of these ladies yeah. were just converted. Yeah. You know, they're all sort of frozen chosen Boom. types. And uh, then it started this, it sort of, they raised the funds to start this ministry, and uh, basically what I'm trying to say is eventually that ministry filtered down to David Zoll. And, um, <laughs> so you have been impacted. So, yeah. And uh, we met, but seriously though, it is, a, it is a, when that happened, I thought, wait a second, this man actually had a, the ripple effects of his ministry are on my life, yeah. even mm -hmm. though sometimes, you know, I, I read what Reinald Niebuhr, you know, they had a real back and forth because uh, Niebuhr felt that by talking too much about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you were juvenilizing the faith a yeah. little bit. Yeah. You were making mm -hmm. it a little too, and we can we can look at it and say there was there was a sort of it could it could be misinterpreted as as law pretty quickly yeah. mm -hmm. as a tit for tat thing. I th but I think everyone that I know who's had contact directly with 
Billy Graham, and you hear yeah. these stories. You yeah. hear a lot of mm -hmm. these stories. It's just unbelievable. The well, kind of personal graciousness he exuded, right. and not and humility. Right. It wasn't just with Queen Elizabeth. And to and to, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, he wasn't playing favorites with the monarch. Right. Uh, and with um, with Niebuhr, though, you always want to point out that Jesus did say, "You have to have faith like a child." Mm. Yes. Yes. And to to such as these, as to little children, belong the kingdom of God. So you know, mm. I think there's a healthy level in which. Um, Yes, our faith needs to connect with children and the child in each one of us. Mm -hmm. And if, if talking about a personal relationship with Jesus is infantilizing the religion, you know, sign me up and hand me a pacifier, you know, I'm... And I'm he can't be there. held responsible for everyone that kind of is, right. as we know, you right. know. Because and ask Niebuhr how many people he convert. Yeah, <laughs> big fat so <laughs> An interesting thing to me, Just too, kidding. I like, like it may, maybe it's my ministry context, um, but like I don't know a lot of people who've ever been like converted on the spot by a talk. Mm -hmm. And you hear that over, like over and over again with him. And I think it just what Aaron is talking about, just like the simplicity of his message, like there's no bells and whistles. You don't get the feeling that he's like, you know, I don't I, I don't even know, like a, a crazy charismatic, you know, yeah. whatever that, how interesting it is to me that just like laying it out plain and simple is that like immediately powerful yeah. and, mm transformative. I will say he had a very deep voice, which is effective. The other thing too, though, is uh, people don't always talk about this or realize this is that in the fifties, how much of, um, how savvy he was from media perspective. And I think this is an interesting little aside about Mockingbird and how a lot of ministries are using technology. There's a, there's a conversation about technology and ministry here, which is an interesting one. He was using radio and TV and a lot of that stuff when it was an early thing. And there's a black and a famous black and white picture of him preaching at a youth for Christ rally very early in his career and it's black and white so you can't tell what color his suit was but if you go back and do your research it was this like canary yellow suit and his tie was sort of this psychedelic weird abstract uh, multicolored sort of thing again none of this comes across in black and white and because he's wearing a suit to us it looks very staid and conservative and sort of Ozzy and Harriet but he was extremely revolutionary in some respects in his day it's like that shirt that John Zoll wore I think at Liberate a few years ago with the cat with the three eyes <laughs> you know how many quite a thing when he stand did up with that so <laughs> quite a uh, thing. yeah so so Graham uh, wanted to communicate the message to as many people as possible and he clearly didn't want to be uh, fenced in by kind of traditional churches and the way it's always been done. And mm -hmm. so I think he's a pioneer in that respect. And I, yeah. I like yeah. that about him. Yeah, I think we could just uh, uh, sit back and appreciate that, that he's mm -hmm. uh, all the many different, all the, <clears throat> all the fingerprints that you just see throughout mm -hmm. the world. And, you know, it, it's interesting. I, what I was been surprised about is how positive the media coverage has been. Mm -hmm. Given our moment yep. mm -hmm. and given the way that we love a good takedown, there's simply not, it doesn't seem to be that much dirt on the man. Mm -hmm. yeah. But also, um, even those, uh, plenty of those people who aren't 100% in, uh, in agreement with the way that he preached the gospel or how he, the impact he had, seem to have sat back and said there was something uh, fundamentally uh, good or at least God-given mm -hmm. about this man. Mm -hmm. And we will not see his like again. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, because I, I do... Uh, immediately I get forwarded stuff about how Billy Graham fits into the theology of grace and certainly seems that a lot of um, 
a lot of what he said really activated that side of people. Yeah. They were talking mm -hmm. about salvation. They were talking about God being the one who saves you. Mm. And um, to live is to live in response to that. Mm. But um, then you do have people that immediately are using it, and as we all do right now, as a dividing line mm. between, well, how could you possibly venerate that person? Um, and I, th this happened like a week after I'd read that section of Alan Jacobs' yeah. book. I know you're friends with Alan Jacobs. He's also speaking in New York, so it's a kind of a shameless plug. But the book, do How, it, How Dave, to Think, has completely rocked me. And he says, um, so to those who are attempting to take pot shots at our sort of our heroes or um, famous people who also turned out to be human, he says, over the years, I've had to acknowledge that some of the people whose views on education appall me are more devoted to their students than I am to mine, and that some of the people whose theological positions strike me as immensely damaging to the health of the church, and that, by the way, would never characterize Billy Graham, mm. are nevertheless more prayerful and charitable, more Christ-like than I will ever be. Mm. This is immensely disconcerting, even when it doesn't mean that those people are right about those matters we disagree on. Being around those people forces me to confront certain truths about myself that I would rather avoid. And that alone is reason to seek every means possible to constrain the energies of animus. I think that's um, a beautiful thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in, in this also like the same week that The Onion reports that a study that 90% of Americans strongly oppose to each other. <laughs> yeah. In the questionnaire we administered, nine out of ten participants indicated they fundamentally disapproved of the actions currently being taken by their fellow citizens, <laughs> said polling analyst Babette Randolph, noting that the rate of opposition remained consistent across all 50 states in virtually every demographic, regardless of age, gender, race, religion, or political identification. Yep. Um, the vast majority of poll respondents signaled uh, they were dead set against the U.S. populace, <laughs> condemning in forceful terms the way others have handled things over the past year and giving the people of their nation historically low ratings. Randolph went on to note that the 10% of survey participants who indicated otherwise did so because they didn't consider those they disagreed with to actually be Americans. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought that, that last bit clever. That's my, those are my views. Uh, I, th I think, um, uh, you know, what Jacobs gets right, and you know, I, I felt sort of convicted listening to this, I don't know, um, I, I'm a fan of Jon Stewart when he used to do The Daily Show, but it would always make me feel really smug, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because he would take down a lot of people, mm -hmm. and maybe he was making right points, but there was um, not a lot of empathy or understanding mm -hmm. for those folks, and I think about someone like Sarah Silverman, who's now going around... Um, and she's got this show, I think it's like, I love you America or something. And so she goes to Louisiana and meets some people who voted for Trump and all have guns and she doesn't understand any of this. But she sits down and she eats with them and tries to understand mm. who they are. And mm -hmm. I think it's this, um, I think what Jacobs is pointing us to is that you can't just dehumanize whole swaths of the population and write them off. And mm. you may find people who you disagree with politically or socially or on any issue who, as he says, may actually be more Christ-like in some respects than you are. You, you could have the right views and be completely self-absorbed, mm -hmm. um, hypothetically speaking. <laughs> uh, so, trying yeah, to say something? About myself. Yes, <laughs> possibly. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. So, and so kudos to Alan for, for sort of naming that thing um, and having, uh, I mean, ha can you imagine a political debate in which someone were to say something like, I disagree with you, but I think you're a better human being than me? Yeah. Like, I mean, that just, it just is never, yeah. never going to happen.
I think so. Scott Jones wrote an article last week on the Mockingbird blog, quoting, I think, from the same chapter that you just read from in this article. Um, and he's talking about in groups and out groups mm-hmm. and sort of like the tribes we tribes that we belong to. I really hate that word, but all right. The sort of different tribes that we belong to. Mm-hmm. And he um, Jacobs in it is using a statistic, I guess. I, sh- I should have written this down, but I'm going to blubber through it. Um, 80 percent of statistics are made up on the spot. Making it up right now. Um, that like most straight white men or straight white men are more likely to be sympathetic with a black with black lesbians than straight white men are with other straight white men. Hmm. And yeah. I thought that was like totally fascinating. And it really made me think, even with you know, the sort of larger body of Christianity. And how, like, I, I don't really have an answer for this, but, like, how quick we are to, like, just slice somebody for, like, a minor thing that's maybe not, like, the full major thing and, and just, like, I don't know, like, totally oust them. Like, we're so harsher on each other mm. than we are on people who are totally different from us. Well, like, so this is the This American Life a few weeks ago, Things You Can't Say. Oh, my goodness. It's this incredible story of a YouTuber who's sort of a very... Uh, she identifies as a feminist, kind of very pro-sex. It's sort of sex ed on YouTube. Uh, Lonnie Green, uh, is that her name? Am I getting this right? Yeah, I and, think that's uh, right. And so she got regularly attacked by people who were sort of anti-feminist, anti-social justice mm-hmm. warrior kind of types. And then she starts dialoguing with them. Like, hey, can we... So she starts having Skype chats because she just is tired of getting eviscerated mm-hmm. and she says can we just talk and so she sets up meetings sometimes they meet in person sometimes they meet online and this is a case where the real life thing ends up being like what the movie would be kind of opposites attract or something like that uh, she ends up talking to this leading so-called alt-right blogger and now they're dating yes so you know funny. because she and she said she felt more acceptance from people in that tribe than from people in her own tribe. You know, she was yeah. beginning to show up to speak on college campuses and she would get in trouble because she would, I mean, it was almost any word she said was yeah. disallowed. Yeah. And so, and I, and I think it's an interesting thing to watch that shift. Um, it's, it, it is not an ideological shift. But she gravitated towards the community that gave her more acceptance. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which, ironically, was the one that was cast as the less accepted. Right. 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 It's, I mean, she says... Well, neither, she's a, and just to save, you know, Mockingbird and any cease and desist or nasty letters <laughs> or comments, you know, we love everybody and we're not <laughs> taking shots at anyone. No, no, I think... But she says she felt like she was back in, like, the worst parts of her Mormon upbringing. Yes. That she had transgressed yeah. uh, some orthodoxy and she was being shamed. Yes by her constituents in huh. the, her own that, tribe by her own tribe yeah you know it actually the, the final piece i wanted to talk about which is a long one but i think is worth everyone reading that is listening right mm. now is the new thing that go, it's actually about people that are feel very much on the out group and it's about the opioid epidemic in america it's by andrew sullivan the poison we pick he kind of goes through and he traces the entire history of the poppy says that for millennia, the poppy has salved pain, suspended grief. Every attempt to banish it, destroy it, or prohibit it has failed. And today, the power of the poppy is greater than ever. More than two million Americans are now hooked on some kind of opioid. And drug overdoses from heroin and fentanyl in particular, that's a big part of this article, claimed more American lives last year than were lost in the entire Vietnam War. Overdose deaths are higher than in the peak year of AIDS, 
and far higher than fatalities from car crashes. But when most people talk about it there, um, and we don't hear about it, mm. partly because the numbers are so big, it's hard yeah. to get your name. And, and it's people that are by and large not, uh, you know, there's the fly, it's a flyover state thing, mm, right. a, lot of, a lot of people say. Uh, but we're ignoring a deeper American story of pain and the search for an end to it. Mm. The scale and darkness of this phenomenon is a sign of a civilization in an acute crisis America, having pioneered the modern way of life, is now in the midst of trying to escape it. Mm. He has the very uh, clever thing where he says, if Marx posited that religion is the opiate of the people, then we have reached a new, more clarifying moment in the history of the West. Opiates are now the religion of the people. Mm. Or as Tim Kreider says, uh, now opiates are the opiate of the people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's significant he writes that dr the drugs that are now conquering America are downers mm -hmm. as opposed to like say uppers like cocaine in the 80s. Mm -hmm. They're not the means to engage life uh, in life more vividly but to seek a respite from its ordeals. And then he goes through all of the sort of medical industry, he talks about the various changing uh, conditions in the economy, less stable family life, a lot of the hillbilly elegy stuff. Smartphone induced loneliness, there's no, mm -hmm. no longer any shared religion, there's political and cultural mm -hmm. tribalism that we just talked about, people who feel like strangers in their own land. Um, I'll just keep reading just a little bit more. What has happened in the past few decades is an accelerated waning of all these traditional American supports for a meaningful collective life and their replacements with various forms of cheap distraction. Addiction to work, to food, to phones, to TV, to video games, to porn, to news, to drugs is all around us. The construction of an overly atomized society where everyone has to create his and her own meaning and everyone feels alone has created a permanent sense of economic insecurity and spiritual emptiness that has become mm. widespread. And yet, he says, it may be best to think of this wave not as a function of miserable people consciously turning to drugs en masse, but of people who didn't realize how miserable they were until they found out what life without misery, aka on Oxycontin or fentanyl, mm. could be. It is easy to dismiss or pity those trapped or dead for whom opiates have filled this emptiness. But it's not quite so easy for the tens of millions of us on antidepressants or Xanax or some benzo drug to keep less acute anxieties at bay. To see this epidemic as simply a pharmaceutical or chemically addictive problem is to miss something. The despair that currently makes so many want to fly away. Opioids are just one of the ways Americans are trying to cope with an inhuman new world where everything is flat, where communication is virtual, and where those core elements of human happiness, faith, family, community, seem to elude so many. Until we resolve these deeper social, cultural, and psychological problems, indeed until we discover a new meaning or reimagine our old religion or reinvent our way of life, the poppy will flourish. Sobering. Uh, Bad pun, I guess, but it's a sobering article, and I, it brought to mind kind of what we're trying to do here mm. in Tyler. Yeah. Mm. And the whole Mockingbird project is to reimagine, reinvent, take the old and degraded mm. words yeah. of the gospel and translate them. John, I know tonight's going to be talking about addiction. He's going yeah. to throughout the week. Mm. But um, I'm sure, have you guys had any contact with this personally, or wh where does your mind go when you read something this devastating? So I, I've kind of feel like, you know, I'm a mother of like super young children, so I'm really thinking mostly about like who's gonna change the poopy diaper next. But this article is a must read. It was so fascinating. And I think one of the most interesting things that speaks to everything you just read is they talk about, um, the author talks about this study they did with rats 
where mm. they put a single rat in a cage with a you know bottle of um, opioids or heroin or something, and then that rat you know ate and ate and ate and ate you know just showing the ad how addictive this stuff is and then died. And then they uh, did another study where they had the same thing, the cage with the you know drink of heroin. I don't know if you can drink heroin. But instead of just a single rat, they put multiple rats and then they put like entertainment stuff in there, you know, hamster wheels and balls. And those rats drank like significantly less of the drugs. And I thought this was so fascinating as it pertains to, you know, like our screen culture, you know, like using a personal anecdote. There was a while last year where I was thinking at the end of the day, all I want to do is like lay down and like binge watch TV. And I've started to realize in the last couple of months that that is like, I mean, this sounds so no duh, but it, but it really has been a, a big revelation to me that like I, that is not giving me the life and the rest that I need. Like I need to, it's sort of like paradoxical. Like you think you need to rest, so lay down. But what I really needed was to like go out with some friends, you know, and like go have dinner or go meet up for coffee with somebody. And I think what's interesting is these, like you said, like the, the main places where this is such an issue are in these towns that are, you know, dead because industry has moved to the cities. And so there's less community. I, I just keep thinking of the word like incarnational, like we're living such less incarnational lives when, mm. you know, you've got the division of the, of the screen in front of you. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I was fascinated to learn like every major romantic poet of uh, oh my gosh, English yes. literature was addicted to opium, along yeah. with Wilberforce and Franklin, which I kind of knew a little bit about. But the thing that I was thinking about is, um, you know, Sullivan might be a little bit guilty of over-romanticizing the sort of um, American past, mid-20th century. He talks about the dignity of manual labor for the blue-collar worker and sort of stuff like that. And, you know, those, those things that gave meaning to life that now have been stripped away. There, there may be a little uh, rose-colored glasses looking back at the past, because certainly there was addiction in those communities. There mm -hmm. was domestic violence in all communities and at uh, every, every level of society. I think he is, though, onto something, even if it's not a 100% causative kind of relationship that he tends to trace. Um, these big capitalistic global forces. And uh, even so, he's onto something in that. I think the drugs now, uh, that he's talking about, especially fentanyl. I mean, he says it's just way more powerful. Mm. I mean, people weren't able to really resist opium, and that's just the sap of this flower that you drain out and dry up and smoke or crush or eat or whatever. Mm. Um, he says the stuff that we have now synthetically produced is so much stronger, so uh, there's no real way that any normal human being can resist it. And so there's a story, too, as well, about kind of willful blindness of the pharmaceutical industry in mm. producing it and then the doctors who would prescribe it and people. So there's a, you know, if, if one thing we talk about a lot at Mockingbird is kind of the tragedy of human existence, uh, or mm. to, to put it lightly, um, or the things that we do that corrupt and destroy the children of God. And mm. um, there's something going on here about kind of being unwilling to think through the consequences of our actions and what mm. this might do. They, they did a study when OxyContin was developed, you learned in this article, they, they thought it wouldn't be addictive because it was <laughs> a slow-release <laughs> drug. And, um, and they did it on and 38 people. They tested it on 38 people. 38 people. Who were so closely monitored in the hospital. Yeah. They never tested it on outpatients. And so, you know, they said uh, one town in West Virginia got, that has a population of 2,900 people, got over 10 years 20 million opioid prescriptions. 
in that one town. And so, so uh, I mean, it's just kerosene thrown on a fight. You already have human mm -hmm. beings. There's always, a, I think, a base level of despair in human society mm -hmm. yeah. and in every individual person. Uh, we all have those lives of quiet desperation at some point. We're all lonely, we're all afraid, we all think we're the only people that feel it. And so we do things that fill our lives with meaning, um, or we find shortcuts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's like, opium was a huge shortcut, fentanyl is, I mean, it's just... It's Killed just, Prince? It, yeah, mm -hmm. Killed Prince. Yeah. And wasn't Michael Jackson using fentanyl? Michael Jackson, That's how we got to sleep every fentanyl, night. Fentanyl, yep. yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I have a, I have a, a, a grudge. Personal, yes. very personal. No, but actually, you know, to be honest with you, you think this is just people out in, you know, uh, I don't know, the middle of nowhere kind of deliverance land. Mm -hmm. But I was talking to someone last night who's, who's uh, got a father who's 90 years old. He's yeah. been taking mm -hmm. Oxycontin for 20 years mm -hmm. yep. and finally was able to be weaned off of it. A yeah. person who is a, who is a Billy Graham convert who yeah. never yeah. touched a drop of alcohol, yeah. but he's been addicted to Oxycontin mm -hmm. for 20 years and, and, and it changed his personality. Yeah. So I do think, yes, we don't want to be the chicken little and uh, say, and I think that perhaps the article is a little bit linear. Mm -hmm. uh, but to ignore the increasing voices that saying there is a spiritual crisis, right. an emptiness, mm -hmm. right. purposelessness. Yes, among American men, we, that was another big theme yeah. this past mm -hmm. week, and among American women, and among Westerners, and among pretty much everyone that are living in a world of nothing but demand, loneliness, law, yeah. mm. with no gospel, yeah. with yeah. no grace, with yes. no God, with no yeah. Jesus. And yeah. that doesn't mean, okay, we should turn America into a Christian nation. It just means let's turn up the volume on the gospel if we can and maybe come to Tyler, Texas for turn a Turn into a gospel nation or something. I mean, I, yeah. I, I was reading this and thinking just why, ha why is nobody flocking to the church in droves? Yeah. Because the church is not talking about the overwhelming despair and meaninglessness that people are talking yeah. about. Yeah. They're just giving parenting advice sermons or how to be better stewards of your mm -hmm. money sermons or uh, all those sorts of things. And I just I feel like the church is just this massive, trivial, banality beige of an institution Vehicle in many de places. Vehicle of denial a yes. little bit. Not always. Yeah. Yeah. I think we see tremendous bright spots. Yes, for sure. But I think one of the reasons why Billy Graham was so effective was that he preached the law and the gospel. He really, he, he pointed out and he identified and he articulated the sadness, despair, sin, dysfunction, guilt, uh, shame of what it means to be a sinner in this world. Yeah. And then in that moment met that with yeah. the absolving, uh, forgiving sort of love of God in Christ. I think it's a... Mm. And when we back off the law, and we just sort of pretend that the world is great, you're great, I'm okay, then there, what, what, you take out the teeth, you know, and, and the amount of churches you go to, unfortunately, that don't talk about the elephant in the room, yeah. mm. which is loneliness, uh, pornography, death, resentment. Um, people sometimes think our church is, you guys, you sound so negative. Mm -hmm. And then and then the next person who's who's had a really terrible life, they come in and say, I've never heard such hope in my life. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, well, how can both of these things be yeah. true? Yeah. And who's in denial, who's not? Who's in, basically that sort of boils yeah. down to, but of course we are not in denial, the three of us. We are <laughs> wonderful. I'm so woke, Dave. It hurts. Well, Godly. <laughs> yeah. it's, this is going to sound Beautiful. Like, I mean, look at this. this I'm going to say something that is going to make y'all worry about me, but like in reading that article and like what may be the like underlying like drive, like we've been talking about behind, you know, wanting, wanting a downer, 
I get that, you know, and I feel like if you get the like real awful, sad condition of what it means to be a human, I mean, obviously with bright spots, I think that's what's so scary about it is I'm like, yeah, like I can totally see why if, if you had no other hope to turn to like the gospel, then like this seems like a really appealing option. And I shouldn't end with that because that's really. <laughs> Let's all pray for <laughs> but, Charlotte before we end yeah. here. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think that's what makes it a really scary. Well, let me situation. let me actually. I'll yeah. end with a plug for Charlotte and Stephanie Phillips, who write for the website, have written a book that's actually all about. Being, opioids. No, no it's no, not I'm about opioids. <laughs> uh, it's about, but it is about God meeting you in the wilderness and in the total unmapped, that's the title of the book, uh, journey of life and what looks like a terrible thing and hope coming, from, coming basically as a gift through uh, circumstances that don't look hopeful. Am I, am I putting words in your mouth? Yeah, yes, keep going. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're the right words, Dave. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a remarkable story of God's work in the lives of two women who are resisting it. Yes. And also open to it and wrestling. And um, that's why, and it's also will make you laugh until you pee your pants, basically. Yes. And Charlotte even talks about peeing her pants. Absolutely. There, <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, anyway. You send it depends to everybody who buys the book. Yeah. Right. That really should be, you know, like yeah. a, you know, get them right in the cover. It's like a package and, deal. It'll, yeah. be out, it'll be out in time for New York. So, plug. There it is. Um, thank you book. all for listening. We've got to go here. Thank you, Aaron. My pleasure. Thank you, Charlotte, for joining us, and thank you guys for listening. Um, talk to you next time. All right. Yay. Bye. Bye. That's it. You can make noise. <laughs> <laughs>Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.